0: In tech, honestly, I, I feel like a lot of the perception is uh, my co-founder Jessica and I, we don't look like, we don't fit the mold. Like we don't look like tech founders. We don't come from a technical background and therefore we don't use all the right language and the right words sometimes. I have never had so many people actually think that I can't do this. And that's like like a red flag to a bull. We're like, well, we'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But yeah, it just makes me realize like how deep that kind of perception is of technology and, and who can access it.
1: Welcome to SheEo.world, a podcast about redesigning the world. I'm your host, Vicki Saunders. In each episode, you'll hear from SheEo Venture Founders, women who are working on the world's to-do list. These innovative business leaders are solving some of the major challenges of our times. Sit back and prepare to be inspired.
0: Hi, I'm Lucinda Hartley. I'm co-founder of Neighbourlytics, which is a social analytics platform for neighbourhoods. And our goal is to create cities that people love and feel connected to.
1: Hi, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us today, Lucinda. Thanks, Vicky. It's a pleasure. We're so excited to be in Australia these days and to have you in the first cohort is amazing.
0: Yeah, it's not so close to Canada. Yeah, that's <laughs> it was wonderful to have a CEO also expand the movement uh, to our region too.
1: So amazing. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got to creating Neighborlytics? Tell us a little bit of your story. Where did you start off in your career?
0: Yeah. So my um, training is in urban planning and I have actually, in a kind of uh, geeky way, wanted to be an architect or urban planner my whole life. <laughs> I grew up living in cities all around the world. And from that experience, I guess I saw how, how places connected people and culture in really unique ways. And I, I wanted to initially be an architect um, because I saw this great opportunity to create these spaces that would connect people. And I ended up studying urban design and planning because that was uh, an even broader way to do that. But the challenge that I found when I started working is that urban planners spend a lot of their time focusing on designing physical environments and especially on very detailed things. So I spent some years of my life designing concrete details and while someone needs to design concrete details, uh, I found that incredibly frustrating and it didn't really meet my objectives of how we really design places for people and what are concrete details like what do you mean like actually designing the concrete specification so how wide the gap is so it doesn't crack what kind of oh, concrete, okay. concrete. <laughs> yeah. actually concrete, details. Actually got concrete details got it okay <laughs> oh, <sorry>. yeah <laughs> detailing actually there's like quite a famous stadium in Melbourne the MCG and um if the Australians visit there uh take pay attention to the uh, the width of the concrete gaps around there because that's my work <laughs>
1: okay, concrete details. Here we go.
0: <laughs> yeah. and um, look, someone needs to do that. It's important. It's important that the concrete doesn't crack, but I, I was much more interested in sort of a systems approach of cities and how people were connected. So I, I left that and went through a, a sort of a series of, of changes and ended up working with the United Nations with UN Habitat based in Southeast Asia and then in Kenya and was working mostly with informal settlements on either urban upgrading or slum resettlement. And that i learned so much from that experience it's really totally reframed how i think about urban development i mean working with people who have no land no resources but are still so incredibly innovative in how they solve problems i I really saw from that that the power of community really changes everything that if you have organized strong communities even if you don't have anything else there is so much power for change and so when i came back to australia several years later i was really curious to see how we could embed some of that community-led thinking into our urban development processes in australia and did that from a number of years through a social enterprise that i started called co-design studio and and they're still around doing fantastic work and co-design is really exists to help the property and planning sectors improve their social outcomes through a whole range of um, strategy and training and, and knowledge projects And I learned a lot from that experience. It was kind of my first venture. So there was a lot of kind of, uh, I guess, I learned about impact, but there was also I learned about like, you know, growing teams and <laughs> managing uh, profit and loss statements and various things like that. Uh, but the big challenge that I found through through all of the different career journeys, whether it was through, you know, consulting or the UN or social enterprise, was that we just weren't measuring the right things when it came to city outcomes. So cities cities have really good information about how fast traffic is going, how high buildings are, the air quality, but when it comes to people and culture, we, we virtually have no metrics and it makes it really hard to create change because, you know, we can't manage what we can't measure. And with my co-founder, Jessica, this was a question that we kept asking ourselves, like how can we really create change? We started to explore measurement as a tool for driving change, because if we can measure how good or and how bad our social outcomes in cities, then we have a benchmark for changing them. And so that led us to launch Neighborlytics two years ago, which is a social analytics platform for neighborhoods. We, we use big data uh, and social data to measure the social and cultural life of neighborhoods.
1: Wow. I mean, that sounds fascinating. And obviously, let's, I mean, let's kind of get underneath that. So like, what are we not measuring that we should be measuring?
0: Yeah. So when I look around in the city that I live in now, in Melbourne, one in three people don't know their neighbours. Loneliness has now been declared like an emergency state. It's it's as likely to kill you as smoking or heart disease. And you can't divorce issues of loneliness and social isolation from neighbourhoods. They fundamentally connect to each other. We don't really understand how those things work or the difference between our decisions and how people behave, and it's very hard to create change. So the things that we try and measure are levels of social connection, of cultural activity, of the economic and business life of a neighbourhood and or its community assets and strengths. For every neighbourhood, we, we bring in more than a million data attributes and analyse those to create um, metrics around well being, uh, essentially, but that well being in a very holistic way of looking at the economic function of a neighborhood, of its community assets, of its social connection and cultural life.
1: Wow. Okay. So, did you, you started this in Melbourne specifically or across Australia? Or like, how did you get started with the idea?
0: Yeah, so we're working around the world already because this is one of the great exciting things about having a digital product. Um, But we began in Melbourne. We really had been talking about metrics for a number of years and and not really knowing that that was going to end up being a new business. We applied for uh, an accelerator um, called She Starts run by Blue Chili out of Sydney you know, we didn't see ourselves as tech founders at all. Like we, we, I didn't even really know what a startup was. Like I was entrepreneurial. Definitely. I'd always been involved in starting businesses, starting initiatives, but you know, my brother's a software engineer and I just looked at what he did and thought that looked so boring. I don't ever want to do that. (laughs) So I just, you know, tech was something that was kind of a bit of a black box for me. And but then when this accelerator came up, it must've been just on my Facebook feed or something. It was called She Starts and it was just for female entrepreneurs. And they were saying like, you don't have to be technical. You know, if you've got an, idea and you know what we just put in an application and then like completely unexpectedly from like more than 400 applications we were in the in the shortlist. list and we're like okay if we're ever going to do it it's now just gave us confidence that we could that we could do this and also connected us with some technical support to get going so we had the idea was there we sort of had a hunch that we were we would be able to you know if we think about our our entire lives are digital now. So everywhere we go, we're leaving digital footprints about the places we go and what we value through our social media accounts and smartphones. And we knew about this data that was there, but we um, needed some sort of structuring in our thinking to look at how we would harness that data to create meaningful insights for the property and planning sector.
1: Wow. Okay. So you got started and I mean, what are you starting to notice with your a million data points for neighborhoods is yeah. wild. Like part of the challenge yeah. is we, we have all this data, but like how do you create a story out of that? How do you understand the insights that are part of that? What are the indicators for well-being in yeah. communities? Like how, take us on a bit of a journey with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that is one of the challenges, like the volume of data these days isn't the problem, but creating right. meaningful insights is, is the real challenge. What we've been looking at over the past year, at the end of the accelerator, we brought on a head of analytics, um, a brilliant female data scientist who's written all our algorithms. We've been using that product. We're now operational in 10 countries. It's growing really quickly. And so what we're able to learn from this data is just really interesting insights. It's like putting an x-ray on your neighborhood and seeing it in a way that you didn't see it before. So in some ways, it confirms what we knew about some things, like active places, like public spaces that have a lot of activity and events going on, also have stronger economies around that area. And and urban planning theory would talk to that, but it's really great to see the evidence of that. But then there are other things that are really surprising Like we find in a lot of neighborhoods where, uh, particularly new neighborhoods, greenfield areas, they look like vacant or underutilized to drive around. You don't see any people. But behind closed doors is this incredible network of home businesses. There's like startups and Etsy stores and other things. And some of the developers we've been working with there were really surprised by this because the kinds of initiatives that they were programming or building in their early neighbourhoods were very much like parents groups and and playgrounds and children's facilities. And I I guess this assumption that there was a lot of young families living there, and that's true, but this has highlighted that they're also entrepreneurs and business owners and, and they're now putting a lot of time and investment into running business meetups building co-working spaces and, and, and really changing the way that they facilitate those community connections with the better information. And the next sort of stage for us is really now that we've established, I guess, quite A large database of insights, actually calibrating this data set to be a rating tool because what's missing in this sector, because we've never been able to measure like social connection and wellbeing at scale before in any kind of consistent way, there isn't a benchmark. There's no ruler to know like what good and bad looks like. And so we're actually starting to now calibrate and test this data so that we can see, well, these are the indicators that drive good outcomes. And these are the ones that you've got to watch if you you may, may be trending into a dangerous area. That's a really exciting process. And we're able to calibrate that across Australia initially, but also use some of our global data sets as well
1: are the indicators driving the same outcomes in all the same places or do you see different well, cultural sort of Yeah. Impact? It's
0: so different. I mean, we, right. we had to yeah. continue some work in Nairobi recently. The interesting thing there is we, we gathered more data from Nairobi than any other project that we have gathered to date. Like it had three times more data than Singapore's Chinatown. Like it's just off the charts, busy. Everything is mobile there. Every, every street hawker, everyone has a Facebook account, a business account. Like there's just so much data but we yeah we noticed sort of new trends there we we looked at sort of the central city we also looked at some informal settlements and and some other kind of you know university areas and and you know the central city is incredibly dense and they, they were just well I guess they were just we had to recalibrate the categories that we analyzed the data because there were things like extraordinary numbers of DJs <laughs> and like other kinds of like we don't have a business category for DJs normally because there's not right. that many <laughs> but yeah and then we're able to look at things like informal business activity not just in informal settlement so we noticed that in cities like Australia too with home-based businesses but like where's the informal economy and the informal services happening and then I guess the lens that we were particularly looking for in Rugby, but uh, one that's applicable around the world, is trying to get better metrics for public spaces. Usually public spaces are measured by how many meters squared you have. Okay, that's it's good that you have it, but I, I mean, a bad public space, an unsafe public space is going to be a massive detraction for your neighborhood, not an asset. So we're looking at ways of measuring perception of safety particularly an activity from social data. And that's a, it's a particular you know, issue in Nairobi um, where there's more safety concerns perhaps in public spaces, but it's an issue globally.
1: Let's talk about gender for a second because I wonder about yes. this. As a, a man is walking down the street in Nairobi into a public space versus a woman, are you tracking gender differences in cities and how we need to think about that? Because most of the people that are at the table that have been designing a lot of these models- yes have not been us. (laughs) So so how does that start to influence things?
0: Yeah. So unfortunately at this stage, because the way that we aggregate the data to anonymize it, we aren't able to look at gender um, disaggregation right now. But what we do know is that when public spaces exhibit certain kinds of activities and behavior, then they're more likely to be inclusive for women. And uh, yeah, a big challenge with many, many sectors, but urban planning also is a lot of the decisions historically have not been made by an inclusive group of people, particularly not by women. Even in cities like Melbourne, which has a reputation of being one of the most livable cities in the world, a third of women don't feel safe in public space, which is just, just an extraordinary, like you just
1: can't believe how that's even possible. Is that like uh, kind of a normal stat or is Melbourne off the charts for that?
0: Uh, well, Melbourne's off the charts in sort of general livability. Like it's always top of the list, we you know, the global list in places to live. But in, you know, in terms of safety, it's actually very safe but perception of safety is very mm-hmm. low. And that's that's the challenge because people often measure safety by like crime statistics, but but crime only speaks to when an incident was reported. Right. And what we know with a lot of particular gender-based violence and, and other perception of safety in particular and how if you feel unsafe, you're not going to fully participate in public life because you're not going to walk that way, you're not going to go to that thing, you're not going to engage in that way. It's a really, really big issue. So while we can't disaggregate our data by gender, we can look at proxies for what would make places safe by looking at the types of business activity, the the types of activities that are going on, the events, the the diversity of cultural life picked up in the different types of events that occur, Mm -hmm. for example. But
1: presumably, if you're pulling in all these data points from both genders, now that's included in the data, so it's likely to be more inclusive. Whether or not you know women feel this way or men feel this way, at least both are being asked.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the the interesting thing about observational data rather than survey data is that you also get around other kind of language biases and things like that. Mm -hmm. Because we're just looking at lat-long data points, not posted in English or others, which is often a barrier for surveying, for example. You're just looking at the behavior.
1: Wow. Okay. So dream state five years from now, what has your technology, because you are a technology company, right? Yeah. Yeah. What is your technology enabled? What do you hope this is going to help us figure out?
0: one is the knowledge because you can't change how cities work unless you really know how they work and so we're we're building an understanding of how they work but the big game changer for us is at scale this has enormous implications for policy and and private sector decision making so currently we work very closely with the private se- property sector and we're we're already seeing like you know, on a smaller scale, decisions being made differently because of this data. We're going to build a co working space instead of this kind of community facility, or we're going to invest in business meetups rather than parents' groups because of this kind of data. It's really exciting stuff. Um, but at scale, you know this has the ability to actually set a new benchmark for how we measure city performance that we're no longer relying on air quality and traffic as our benchmark for success that we're actually measuring things like social connection and cultural life as our measure and we have some very real opportunities to do that so you know part of this project this pilot in Nairobi was that we're talking to you on habitat and how we can embed this data as one of the measurement tools for SDG 11 which is on cities and public spaces so we have that kind of opportunity or or working on on projects in Australia which around measuring well-being as the primary framework for how we think about smart cities investment. We have some very big opportunities, I guess, from a decision-making and policy perspective of how we can really drive systemic change.
1: That's amazing. And so, I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot at CEO is the sort of relationship versus the transaction and really Mm. understanding that, you know, the connective tissue in communities comes from these embedded relationships, which in many ways are, like there's just not a lot of transparency around them. Even what you said, like, I I just love this sort of like x-ray on top of your community. This is like a fantastic metaphor, not a metaphor, but like the image of it Mm. Uh, is amazing because what is, what's really happening? You know, what are people actually doing? I think about this all the time in my community. I live in Toronto, in Canada, and I walk down the street now and the coffee shops are full all day long. And I'm like, what are all these people doing? Uh, Which is amazing though, because it's the gig economy and and all the new ways people are working. But to have a sense of the health in my community, I I wanted to know that. I want to know what that looks like. Do you imagine that this information will sit in some kind of dashboards for us to look at what are the pain points in our community? How Can <laughs> we
0: help? Like I would love yeah. to do that. You know, I, I would yeah. like to use
1: my energy to create more connective tissue in my community, but I have no idea where to start.
0: Yes. And that's a really common question. I mean, people... Don't they don't even have a way of accessing, I'd like to get, you know, I'd like to get more involved in my neighbourhood, but what's even going on? Like, how do I even find out? So, yeah, absolutely. That is our objective that at at least at a a broader level, we will be able to make the data publicly available. We will be able to integrate it with a whole lot of other platforms uh, and make it really visible for people. Right now, just because we're just under two years old, we're, we're focusing on more proprietary products for the property sector. Our end game is a much more open model.
1: The concept of space and place is really very important, right? Especially when we think of economic development. And so I wonder, chicken or the egg, kind of on this one. Part of it is what what wants to emerge, or what is emerging, or what is true right now.
0: Mm. And if we want to
1: shift things, are we able to? Are you seeing people do transformational work in communities based on the data, or is it still
0: early? It's early um, in that you know, neighbourhoods move and, you know, iterate, pivot, etc. slowly. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we have a year's worth of data and we've seen like changes in that time, but we suspect that the real change is still to come. But in terms of the chicken and egg, like I, I like to think of like places as like hardware and software and you need both. You need the bones or the hardware of the place, but it doesn't mean anything unless you have the software, or the people and the cultural life. Traditionally, we we have this I say we as like the urban planning sector have this kind of build-and-they will come kind of mentality. Like if we get the streets just right and the houses just right, et cetera, it's gonna be great. But the reality is that people are like messy and unpredictable and they don't behave exactly how you want them to behave. And and that approach never works. So you need a much more kind of collaborative model that actually really values the human sort of side of neighborhoods. And interestingly, if, you, if you, you can have a neighborhood which has software without the hardware, like say a market or something like a pop-up market or something is a very ephemeral, which is just people with not much infrastructure and it works. It's, but you, if you have just the hardware side and not the software side, it doesn't work. You just have like a really isolated kind of concrete jungle. So we're really looking at ways that we can, I guess, strengthen community voices by highlighting who and how people are behaving in neighborhoods. We're also challenging how people think about perception because typically any understanding of social life is done by surveying, but that tends to be quite a limited point of view and people also respond in surveys, often not particularly accurately. <laughs> mm, right. Like, how often do you go to the gym? Oh, well, you know, every day. But like my, my location data will show like a different story. So we actually pick up much more accurate kind of behavioural patterns and mm-hmm. things like surveys, which can then drive better outcomes. Yeah.
1: So when you were getting started with this, I mean, I remember you saying to me when we were talking in Australia that you were sitting in these meetings with urban planners who were looking yeah. at certain data and you're like, there's got to be more to this, right? Like <laughs> yeah. they're missing all of this stuff. When you said that this is what you wanted to start, what kind of feedback did you get from your peers? As Yeah, like are you I, on on that trend <laughs> or, you know? <laughs>
0: It, it depends who. So initially people sort of went, that's an interesting idea, but, you know, in the sense that you think that they're thinking, I, I don't think that's going to work. You're like, you are going to use social media to measure cities, it's going to be a total game changer. Like, It's going <laughs> to influence policy and everything and people are like, yeah, okay, nice. Um, uh, that's a good idea. And I, But I, you know, and I still think that the data analytics is, especially social data re- analytics, is so new that it requires a fair amount of understanding to really trust that data. And I understand that because I've been on that journey myself, but I now really do trust it, and I, I think we should increasingly trust it because it's only becoming more robust. So there's that kind of side, but I think what I have found working in tech as opposed to working in property and consulting is that I have never, well, not maybe not never, but not recently had people not really question that I could do this in my early career, you know, designing concrete, the actual concrete details and things like that. I mean, yes, I face gender barriers being in a very male dominant workplace, but I never felt that no one like handed me a task thinking, I don't think she can do this. In tech, honestly, I I feel like a lot of the perception is my co-founder, you know, Jessica and I, we don't look like, we don't fit the mold. Like we don't look like tech founders. We don't come from a technical background and therefore we don't use all the right language and the right words sometimes. I have never had so many people actually think that I can't do this. And that's like, you know, it's like a red flag to a bull. We're like, well, we'll show you. (laughs) Excellent. But yeah, it just makes me realize like how deep that kind of perception is of technology and and who can access it.
1: Literally, it is such a competitive advantage to be a woman in the world right now from my perspective.
0: Mm. Because...
1: All these ideas we come up with, people are like, what? What are you talking about? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Why would anyone do that? And you're like, awesome. If you don't (laughs) understand this, I'm on the right path. Because it's almost like we have to, I personally feel like we have to redesign almost everything that's out there in the world. And so you coming in with this lens with whatever your point of view is on it, saying we're missing this whole other part of humanity that's like not part of this discussion, the relationships, the connections that exist in our communities mm. and using the social data to track that to create a more holistic picture as opposed to the very narrow world we've been in is a massive opportunity, right? How do you bolster yourself? How do you find your people? You know, how do you yeah. find the people around you who lift you up as you're going through this process? Because it's obviously isolating sometimes.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. She owes a massive uh, opportunity in that way. Um, uh, We've already um, been able to connect with so many people and we're only just, you know, a few weeks in. I I, I can't wait. You know, we just closed our first seed investment round and interestingly, all of our investors are women, almost Mm, all. Very senior, very experienced women in the property sector and other um, aligned industries. And and that was kind of actually not by design, but when we actually, you know, set up our cap table recently to finalise it, we're like, they're all women <laughs> <I love> <laughs> Yes, yeah. basically um so they're a huge support I certainly like she starts and other programs like that have helped i guess give us some confidence and and networks in the in the technical sector that we really didn't have before and we're still involved in that i mean i think you're right that it is a definite advantage to be a woman right now there's so many different ways that we are able to access support. It doesn't make that it mean that it's easy, but I do feel that I we have an increasing network of people that we can draw on. Yeah. Well,
1: I think partly for me is it's really just more about the perspective too, right? Like there's mm. there's literally half of the brain of the planet has been missing all yeah. this time. Right. So if we get to kind of like bring it in and share a different perspective, there's a lot of things that have been missed. Right. Yeah. A lot of like incredible things and I I just I wonder a lot about that finding your people along the way and how challenging that was is so you were in the property sector how hard was it to get that first person to go oh my god this is amazing it makes sense to me
0: yeah initially um i guess the the very very first people we had some amazing early adopters who really worked with us from the beginning but it's probably been the next kind of early majority which is still kind of you know, you get sort of questioning looks and things like that, and it's part the product is new and crazy, but it's also part that we don't fit the bill, and and I think that that is actually the greater challenge that I that we're finding is that even though we have a lot of support and networks to really help us navigate startups, it's this kind of set of rules. You know yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you're meant to sort of follow that you're meant to do things this way and that way, and you know a lot of them just make good business sense. But sometimes you just go, well, like why? You know, like yeah. why do we need to do it that way? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, yeah, don't do and that. There really if needs it to be a valid away. reason.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it doesn't feel right, if it feels confusing, it's not you. Yeah, it's definitely don't do that. Run, run the other direction. So UN Sustainable Development Goals. Can you talk yes. a little bit about how big of a problem is SDG 11? Mm. Like how big of of the challenge is that? And what are the things that are gonna crack that open?
0: So I had the opportunity like when I was working with UN Habitat um, in my early career to to be involved in shaping some of the indicators of SDG 11. I was appointed to um, what they called at the time a youth advisory board where they had 12 youth advisors from around the world um, involved in some of those discussions. It was just an extraordinary opportunity. The particular working group that I was part of was around public space. SDG 11 has a a lot of different ones. But the big debate at the time was should there be a sustainable development goal on cities at all? And the argument was, well, currently half the world lives in cities, and by 2050, depending on which metric you use, seventy or eighty percent of the world is going to live in cities. So, if we don't really head on tackle cities, like we're kind of missing all of humanity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, fortunately, there is a goal on cities, um, and it has a whole lot of different indicators from inclusion to infrastructure and collaboration and engagement others but um, I guess my interest has been in the one on on public space but yeah I I do see that SDG 11 because the majority of the world lives in cities and many of our other issues are connected in some ways to our our, and when I say cities it's human settlements you know living environments in some way um, it's so critical to get that right. Like it, it just, it's its one of your determinants of your life expectancy is your postcode, you know? So right. you have this, you, you could have this kind of like disadvantage from birth just on based on like your postcode where you're born. And so leveling that kind of playing field is something that we're really excited about.
1: Yeah, I mean, that would just be incredible if you could look at, okay, so you're already behind 10 years in your lifespan by being born in this postal code and therefore- here are all the different indicators that we need to double down on or whatever to yeah. try improve those over time. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, the implications from policymaking are very exciting, right? If yeah. you can actually figure that out.
0: That's right. Yeah. And I think from a government perspective, a lot of our government clients are particularly interested to look at like indicators of vulnerability or health inequalities and able to do that at scale with our data. So that's really exciting. We're just beginning those conversations. <laughs>
1: Very cool. And so can we just end on your why again? Like, why does this matter to you? Why why do you go out of bed every single day and do whatever it takes to make this happen despite all the odds?
0: Yeah, I I believe that it's possible to solve this challenge. So I, you know, at Navalytics, we're creating cities that people feel connected to. We believe that that's like the fundamental, you know, if you get that right, all of your other kind of life, <laughs> um, pieces of your life will more likely to fall into place if you have good social relationships, if you have everything else. We are passionate about creating that. I get out of bed because I love that. And my whole you know life and career has been about cities. But I also fundamentally believe that it's possible to solve this. And I also believe that now is the time. Because if we have this window of time between 50% of the world living in cities now and 80% by 2050, like That's this 30 year gap that we have to get it right. It's not that long. Our biggest risk is not scaling fast enough. It's sort of like getting to scale so that we can get ahead and make sure that all of that city that needs to be built in the next 30 years is built with like people in mind and people at the center.
1: Beautiful. Well, thank you for everything you do. (laughs) No, thank you. We're just absolutely thrilled to be supporting you. And thank you to the women of Australia who voted for you. Can't wait to see how you tackle this SDG and how you change cities for the better for all of us. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no, thanks, Vicky. We couldn't be more thankful for Sheo and the Activator Network and everything. It's it's an extraordinary model and we're thrilled to be part of it.
1: Awesome. You're the best. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the World podcast. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like more information about CEO, please visit us at World. That's S- H-E-E-O dot world.